Hello and welcome to another edition of Across the States, the premier state policy podcast courtesy of the American Legislative Exchange Council in another episode of ALEC TV. I'm your host, Matt Fisher, as always. Good to have you with us today here on Tuesday, April 26th. And joining us today is a special guest to discuss the issue of tech, big tech and more, Harmeet Dillon, CEO of the Center for American Liberty, a longtime civil rights and free speech lawyer with a record of tackling cases pertaining to big tech. Harmeet, welcome to Across the States. How are you doing today? I'm wonderful. Thanks for having me on this important topic. Absolutely, absolutely. And Jonathan Hohenschild also joins us, our director of the ALEC Task Force on Communications and Technology. Jonathan, how are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So I think the timing of this podcast is perfect because I think everyone who's been following on social media, been reading a newspaper over the last few days, has seen what's been the major driving topic in the news cycle. Elon Musk founder, CEO of Tesla and more, has decided to purchase, has purchased for over $40 billion, he's purchased Twitter. Now, this has obviously caused a great deal of debate and discussion. So, um, Armin, the first question is, what is the impact of Elon Musk and his group purchasing Twitter in terms of debate and discussion on social media platforms? Well, uh, first of all, I don't think it could get any worse on Twitter than what it is, which is both a series of rules that are presented to the public that are not followed by the company. I think that's well established. Opacity in algorithms, um, in in uh, allowing bots, in not taking down false accounts. Uh, I could I could give you a hundred examples from my law practice. So, if you were to take Elon Musk at his word, uh, you we will see a huge improvement in free speech depending on your perspective. Uh, from increasingly and alarmingly from the left's perspective in this country, open and free speech is dangerous and threatens people. And so from that perspective, more speech is dangerous and they are going to lose control of this particular platform. From the classical liberal perspective, you know, I, I used to be on the board of the American Civil Liberties Union and I've fought on behalf of free speech uh, clients who I don't necessarily agree with for my whole career. It's a wonderful thing because the antidote to speech that you don't agree with is more speech, not shutting down that speech. And so I look forward to that. On the other hand, I'm probably going to see some stuff on Twitter that uh, doesn't make me feel comfortable. And guess what? They have wonderful tools and filters that you can use to uh, curate your own experience there. And that's one of the things I love about Twitter. I'm on Twitter several hours a day. Absolutely. So, Jonathan, any questions follow up or? I mean, I think we're looking now not just at potentially greater participation uh, on the forum that is Twitter, but we're also seeing kind of a negative reaction from the left, and that reaction seems to be being led by the White House. Um, you know, uh, we have the White House warning social media platforms, including Twitter, not to spread misinformation. Uh, the actual statement from Jin Psaki yesterday was that the White House is concerned with the power of social media platforms, including Twitter and others, to spread misinformation, and that tougher scrutiny should occur to prevent the spread of false information on political issues and the COVID-19 pandemic. But but then they said something, and I'd, I'd love to get your take on, that, that really alarms me, especially with what the Biden administration's been doing a lot recently. And that is that the White House is regularly engaging, and that's actually her term that she used, regularly engaging with social media platforms to prevent the spread of information the White House deems inappropriate. So I'd love your comment on that one, but kind of my question on that one is, 
and this will get to something we discuss later, when that happens, do social media platforms really have the, the freedom or feel like they have the freedom to leave controversial content up? Well, let's let's review the bidding here of what's actually been happening. So first of all, Jen Psaki has her job and Joe Biden has his job as a result of an election that occurred in 2020. However, what people often don't know is the extent to which state secretaries of state played a role in pressuring the social media companies as to their content, both on COVID issues, but even on election related issues. And, you know, that's one of the lawsuits that I'm involved with, which we can talk about later. But you have to look at how regulation works in the United States. And in this case, it's an unusual situation of one very wealthy entrepreneur purchasing this company outright. They're not, I don't think they're equipped to deal with that. They can't bully a person who has that level of wealth. So they're using different tactics. So to preemptively bully and deter Mr. Musk, uh, the White House probably made a few phone calls. I wasn't a witness to these phone calls, I'm guessing. And suddenly the SEC is beginning to investigate Elon Musk for various issues. We don't know what, but he has other companies. This is only one of his many ventures. And so it's a, frankly, a mafia-like tactic. Hey, you know, it's a, you have this wonderful car company over here. It'd be a shame if anything happened to it if you were to go uh, interfere with our free speech censorship regime uh, over here on this side. And so um, I think that's very alarming as an American. I would, I would frankly say the same thing if I saw a... Uh, a Republican administration do that. That's an abuse of power. That's not the role of the federal government to uh, install their cronies and get angry if their cronies are ejected from leadership of a publicly traded company, at least at the time this discussion was occurring. Um, but those are the tools. I mean, we, we've seen tools of government investigation weaponized against corporate entities repeatedly or against individuals who are deemed inconvenient as to their speech and so forth. You've seen this administration threaten to investigate moms and dads who show up at PTA meetings. And that sounds like ridiculous rhetoric. And anybody who knows the history of this country knows that our founders were not deterred by that kind of rhetoric. And it led to a revolution in this country. But your average citizen your average CEO, your average executive is very much deterred by it. They're very much deterred by seeing headlines that say they're the subject of a United States Department of Justice investigation. If you're a corporate board, you're very concerned that you are going to be the subject of an SEC investigation. And to, just to give a little more context here, in real life, those of us who do corporate law like I do at times and employment law, you know that in real life, the SEC and the DOJ have extremely limited resources. They talk a big game, but in real life, the SEC doesn't have time to actually look at even 1% of the actual insider trading violations, good governance issues, filing problems, irregularities, ditto the DOJ. So when they suddenly pluck your non-issue and put it on the top of the pile, you know it's going to get attention, the White House is looking, and you're in trouble. So the chilling effect of that cannot be overstated. It is huge. And so and then you have state, state secretaries of state using their money and their power to do the same thing. And suddenly it takes a real act of courage to stand up to that regime and say, we're going to allow people to speak and let the chips fall where they may. Definitely. A freedom of speech is an issue that matters to us all. And the ACLU has historically been on the right side of this issue. With the, after the purchase of Twitter yesterday by Elon Musk, the ACLU warned 
of the dangers of, quote, having so much power in the hands of any one individual, end quote, and claims the public should be concerned that any powerful actor like an Elon Musk uh, could have that much authority over the boundaries of our political speech. Now, the ACLU's reaction is actually pretty tame in comparison to what you referred to earlier in regards to what Jonathan alluded to. So looking at the overall equation of the entire landscape of this entire situation going on, how do you think the left views the issue of free speech and expression, the ideal that is Amer the American ideal of free speech, considering their meltdown overall, their gen general meltdown to this news? What do you think ultimately how they view freedom of speech? Well, it's freedom of speech for me, but not for thee. Um, and so I think what you're seeing is like you, I saw a number of humorous posts yesterday on the newly freed Twitter of Robert Reich saying one thing, you know, just a year or two ago about free speech online and today saying something very else. What the ACLU said is not objectionable. Yes, it is concerning that one person has power and they affect the discourse. But that literal message is, is 180 degrees diametrically opposed to the very litigation that I've been doing all these years. I have been attacking these companies because I think it is evident empirically to anybody who actually engages in our market of ideas today that where the, that marketplace is, it exists online. Uh, right. I love newspapers. I love physical books. I use them to prop up my computer here. But in real life, what am I reading every day? I'm reading on my phone. I am reading on social media. I am engaging. I am publishing commentary there. My, my television appearances appear there. That is how uh, ideas are shaped. That is how people campaign. And if you don't believe that, look at how hard uh, the government tried to censor what, go, what goes on online. Uh, similarly, when you look at add COVID into that and the fact that millions of tens of millions of American school children were forced to go to school on the internet, uh, the laptop class of our country, which has a disproportionate influence over our laws and everything also did their work over the internet. And our lives were shifted online at the very same time that the government and I would say information oligarchs have really throttled our access to free speech. And so that's what's dangerous. If you think Elon Musk having control of the government is dangerous, how dangerous is it for Joe Biden and Joe Biden's White House to have control of the internet combined with their force of law, their SEC, their DOJ, their FEC, their FCC, you name it, all the alphabets arrayed against you. That is far more dangerous to me than one citizen motivated by profit and personal interest. Yeah, that's a great point. And of course, we know the federal government's doing it, but I know you have a case against the uh, Secretary of State, especially the former Secretary of State, um, regarding a something of a social media star. Why, why don't you talk a little bit about that case, what it involves in some of the, the facts and the allegations that you're free to talk about? Sure. So I represent uh, at the Center for uh, American Liberty and at my law firm, Rogan O'Handley. Rogan O'Handley is a conservative lawyer. He was a Hollywood uh, deal-making lawyer before he decided to engage online after the election of Donald Trump. And he became a social media darling under the name of DC Drano. In other words, drain the swamp, okay? So DC Drano uh, put out popular content, memes, uh, you know, his own ideas, and quickly grew to hundreds of thousands of subscribers on the different social media platforms. At Twitter, I think he had over half a million followers. And 
so he had a clean record and you know how it works on twitter for those of you who are not active on it is that they have some rules and regulations and if you violate the copyright rules or content rules they'll issue you warnings they'll give you timeouts. so he didn't have any of that leading up to the election the election was con contested there was litigation going on in multiple states and so over the course of the weeks after the november 2020 election he posted some memes, some screenshots, some comments, and ultimately a photograph of the United States Capitol surrounded by barbed wire. And he got suspended, I think three or four times. And then the final time that caused him to be permanently banned from Twitter was simply a photograph of the United States Capitol surrounded by barbed wire that said something to the effect of most votes in American history, period. So in other words, mocking the claims of uh, Joe Biden and his campaign. He was permanently suspended for that. I think you and I would both agree innocuous uh, and, and perfectly protected, protected by the revolutionary where there's literally the type of uh, commentary and caricaturing and poking fun at the king or at the candidate that was a foundational concept of our United States revolution. And yet he was taken off of social media for that. Now, in my prior litigation against these companies, uh, I have had some, I think, really compelling cases of the companies themselves violating tort law, violating contract law, set aside the First Amendment, just violating their own state law. And courts have time and time again said that Communications Decency Act, Section 230, which was passed in 1996 to help the nascent pre-social media internet platforms, Prodigy, AOL, remember those, help them uh, not get sued into bankruptcy for trying to police pornography and defamatory content on there on, over the phone lines. So that law is out of date, in my opinion, needs to be updated. It effectively provides a carve out and, and to my opinion, a monopoly protection for these big tech companies. But that said, I don't think it applies at all to some of these situations, but the court said they did. So Rogan's case, however, we learned that the Secretary of State of California, Alex Padilla, who's now a United States Senator, used taxpayer dollars to the tune of $25 million in a closed bid contract. In other words, they solicited bids from a couple of friendly Democrat-known lobbying shops and, and, and PR shops, not lobbying, but PR. So they selected a company called SKD Knickerbocker, which is also a company that did strategy and consulting for the Biden campaign to look online right after the election and report back whether people were putting out harmful content about the election. And so every day this company would put together a list of the questionable in their mind, according to their orders, social media posts. Our clients posts happen to be on that list. We got a hold of those through Judicial Watch. Judicial Watch did Public Records Act requests about this. And how did it come to light? Well, through social media. It turns out that the general counsel of Twitter bragged on social media, similar to the comments you saw Jen Psaki do this week about the purchase of Twitter. She said, well, you know, we, we were proud to engage with governments to take down harmful speech and make sure content about the election was accurate and, and, and helpful. So that prompted the Public Records Act request, which prompted ultimately after a lot of fighting the documents, which prompted our litigation. And so the government has crossed over from simply having opinions about social media companies 
into regulating them through these types of endeavors. What they call partnerships, I call censorship. If, just to use that mafia example, if your local gang boss comes to you and said, I'd like to partner with you to make sure that what you're doing here is safe, your beautiful glass window in front of your hat shop is safe, you say, okay, let's talk about that because you know there's a disproportionate power there. And so that's exactly what happened here. We learned through our litigation and through these efforts that the National Association of Secretaries of State based in DC ran this program and all the big social media companies participated in it. And they took direction from, from, from secretaries of state in different states, specifically most actively California. And as a result of that, in the case of Twitter, 98% of the content that was recommended by this consultant to California's Secretary of State was taken down. That included our client. And I'm talking about the death penalty, removing him from social media altogether. So it's going to be very interesting to see whether Elon Musk wants to respect the uh, takedown decisions of Twitter beforehand. I kind of doubt it. And I happen to know, I think you he's been public about the fact that uh, the Babylon Bee's un uh, unjustified removal from Twitter for posting very humorous satire is what triggered Elon Musk to go down this path. And so what happens in this litigation is going to be interesting. But even if our client gets let back on, which we very much hope happens very soon, that doesn't end the, the question of whether the government, be it the federal government or state governments, can use tax dollars to censor our speech online in private companies. It is a very disturbing development. We saw it in the election. We saw that pressure uh, was brought to bear by these tech companies. Twitter specifically did not allow the New York Post, a publication started by Alexander Hamilton, a venerable publication, to post its content about Hunter Biden's laptop, which today we know is deeply disturbing content that even the United States of Justice now investigating. Timing is everything. If that commentary and content had been allowed in a timely manner, the outcome of the election might have been different. So this is not merely theoretical. This is not my feelings, your feelings. This censorship affects the outcome of elections. That is should be troubling to every citizen, regardless of their political viewpoint. Definitely, definitely. So as you just mentioned there a moment ago, the how social media companies have responded in the past to the Babylon Bee, they're now talking, now we're going to be seeing Elon Musk. And we've seen how the states have responded and, you know, big tech companies in the past. What can we expect will be in store for Elon Musk from the Biden administration, from state houses, now that he actually can control and he owns Twitter? He is the new owner of Twitter. What can we expect and foresee to happen in the next few weeks and months ahead for Musk and his new enterprise? I think there's going to be quite a bit of impotent thrashing around. Uh, there is actually not that much that you can do, I think, ultimately. But of course, he'll hire some more lawyers and he will, I think, successfully beat back uh, a lot of these challenges. Is you know, Insider trading doesn't come into it when there's no trading. You own the stock, right? Um, you know, I, I think what you're going to see some, I, I can predict, I, I am just a, a few blocks away from the Twitter headquarters. And I posted last night on social media, Twitter used to have conservative employees. And one of them was on the board of the San Francisco GOP. So on election night in 2016, I was actually at Twitter's headquarters where they let us use their common space after hours to watch the election results. That was very delicious. I'm sure to yesterday, the few employees who bothered to come into work, they are not working remotely. 
there's an absolute meltdown. So some of the things I can expect to see would be maybe some labor claims like, oh, you know, you didn't, you fired all these you know, algorithm tech growth and, you know, that violates their rights or some claims of discrimination. California law, for example, forbids termination on the basis of political view. I suspect there's going to be some liberal lawyer, ambulance chasers coming out to represent individual workers to try to make some kind of a fake class action out of whatever happens. I don't know whether Elon Musk is planning to fire anybody, but I think, you know, if you look at things like potentially moving the headquarters to a different place, he did make remarks on social media about how Twitter's offices are so empty on Market Street in San Francisco, maybe they should be converted into a homeless shelter because nobody shows up there anymore and it's prime real estate. Why not? And there's homeless people on the street. Why not move them up to the offices? If you move the offices to Texas or Florida or some other state, that automatically changes the culture of the workforce. Some of those people would never oh, go. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I would recommend that, Elon Musk, if you're watching this, please move the headquarters of Twitter. Um, and and so some of the other things like that. Uh, so I think you can see tax issue, tax investigations, SEC, DOJ, and maybe FEC uh, are going, not FEC, but um, F FCC will be weaponized again. But, but some of the tools that these companies, like you see, Elizabeth Warren and others you know, prancing around talking about these issues. They talk about antitrust and so forth, which they've used to threaten Google and Facebook because Google and Facebook have vertical integration. They have Instagram with Facebook. They have, um, gosh, everything, phones and, you know, you name it with Google. They're in everybody's business. They don't have that with Twitter. There's no, there's right. no antitrust issue. There's no antitrust issue with Elon Musk's other owner. He makes cars. He makes rocket ships. He makes a couple of other things that have nothing to do with social media. The, the antitrust issue weapon is dead with respect to this now, which is interesting because I would have thought that at some point when Republicans take back the House in November, uh, I've spoken to several members of Congress casually and formally in front of in hearings. I've testified in Congress about these issues. I think there were going to be hearings about antitrust and so forth. And there still can be. It's just not going to impact Twitter. There, the minute that Elon Musk is not cooperating in this censorship cartel, that ends the question. Suddenly we have more competition in America because what was happening before is the governments and the arbiters of free speech in this country, your Fauci's and others, you know, make tutting about uh, speech about the vaccines on the internet. They were, um, all of these companies were nodding thoughtfully and their CEOs were nodding thoughtfully and they were all doing the same thing in concert. Talk about an antitrust issue. The same people were being taken off of all these platforms, Donald Trump, for example. Uh, suddenly you're gonna have a competition here where there'll be more free speech on Twitter if Musk follows through than there are on the others. That's. And I, I put a, up a tweet yesterday, I just saw it was, had 10,000 likes on it uh, this morning, that says that one salutary influence of Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter will be to put pressure on the other social media companies to compete uh, mm. and, and, and sort of wake up and see whether their consumers really want this regime. Because what I saw and others saw who have big accounts on social media yesterday is hundreds or thousands of new followers on Twitter. People, are people who had left Twitter are flocking back to Twitter. The market is speaking in favor of more free speech. That bodes that either these other companies are going to have to adapt or lose market share, which, and they're still publicly traded. So they have shareholder pressure that could lose to uh, 
class actions, stock drop lawsuits and the like. Our, our public sector members, so our state legislators are very much fascinated by this. They've introduced policies um, the past couple sessions trying to remedy certain things, some of which have been thrown out by courts, others um, are still in the process. But you mentioned, particularly with your case with the secretaries of state, it, it would seem to me that state legislators could exercise some oversight over their secretaries of state. Um, in addition to that, what do you think state legislators could do to help push back against this government abuse of authority? So, you know, finding out if they're uh, someone in their government's pressuring the social media companies, if the secretaries of state are working, what else can they do to help push back against this government overreach? That's a great question. So I see two big areas, and I hope I can remember these thoughts as you were talking. So area number one is money. SKD, Knickerbocker, and their like, they don't work for free. Um, you know, there may be some like ramen-eating liberal lawyers who, you know, represent Antifa for free. I don't know. But like, they, you know, you're not going to get $25 million worth of service from a big consulting firm to do this. So it was shameful. And even some Democrat lawmakers in California questioned how the Secretary of State could just hand out $25 million to a crony. And you know who was complaining? Other liberal crony organizations that didn't get the money. They were pretty unhappy that the bidding was so, you know, giving. By the way, did I mention the conflict of interest of the guy who was auditioning for United States Senator if Kamala Harris became the United States vice president doing favors and carrying water for the Biden administration, where he was going to be appointed to the position of United States Senator, a lot of incestuous stuff going on there. And so the contract is given to a Biden campaign consultant, uh, Democrat or Republican, you should be very worried about the tax dollars of your state being handed out as goodies to the political allies of other Democrats, other Republicans. Yeah, so, Merritt probably didn't play a role there. Merritt had probably not much role, I guess. I mean, in the Merritt, look at the Merit, <laughs> They got their goal, right? They shut down speech critical of Joe Biden and Alex Padilla. By the way, the, the assignment was, you know, sort of Padilla-focused. Like he was the Secretary of State. It happened to incidentally benefit the whole the ticket, and he happened to become the, the senator from California, which... Well, Lord, Lord knows Padilla needed help when he's in California. It's definitely yeah. a major deep, deep red state. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, but, but it was competitive. There were many other people who wanted that position. He happened to have a twenty-five million dollar, twenty-five million reasons to appoint him. Okay. So, but, but I think Democrats were upset about this. So, if I were a legislature, I would shut that down. Secretary of State cannot give out grants like this of that size or of any size without some budgeting and appropriations process. There could be a law that says that, that this type of uh, expenditure to influence speech is, imp is impermissible with government funds. And I, and I, but you know why? Because it exposes the state to lawsuits like the one that I filed. Now, a federal judge dismissed that lawsuit. We filed our opening brief in the Ninth Circuit this week. And I think it's an excellent First Amendment case and it needs to get the attention of the higher courts. So anyway, that's one thing that can be done. But so I am sympathetic to legislation that I have seen regarding social media companies in red states like Florida and others to say, 
you know, if you censor these companies, I don't know the exact details, but they attempt to crack down on censorship of these companies. I think, I think we have a structural problem here because there is a federal law. That federal law, Communications Decency Act, Section 230, has been repeatedly interpreted by wrongly by different courts to preempt state law. And in fact, the minute that a governor signs legislation that's well-meaning in this regard, it is challenged and it is struck down. So that can be changed by, well, Congress, but President Biden's not going to sign it if he is still the president by the time the legislation comes around. Um, so, you know, it has to be a goal and something that I evangelize on every time I meet a Republican legislator uh, or a legislator who cares about free speech, not just Republican, and say, when we have the House and the Senate and the White House, like we did in 2016, 2017, 2018, we did not do this, it is imperative that we provide users on social media a user's bill of rights, okay? Private right of action should be allowed, just like it's allowed in other uh, other situations. Companies can be encouraged to meet certain standards, and if they meet them, they get certain safe harbor protection from certain types of lawsuits. They should not be sued for taking down content that is defamatory, pornography, et cetera. And those are enumerated categories in Section 230. The problem in Section 230 is there's a catch-all category of otherwise objectionable. Otherwise objectionable has been used to take down Rogan O'Hanley's speech and speech of truthful speech about vaccines and about COVID um, and so forth. So I think I think it's ripe for reform. So there are some things that legislators can do at the state level, expenditure-wise, as well as policy-wise, no state funds to be used for censorship online or in media publications or whatever, and maybe reporter shields. There are a lot of things that can be done to improve First Amendment protections at the state level. I urge states to look at those. But until the federal government cuts back Section 230, I'm afraid that states are not going to be successful in the kind of... Now I can't use the word meta anymore because that means basically <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Transformative <laughs> changes to empower citizens. Th that blockage needs to be removed that the courts have unfairly put in place. And by the way, ironically, Section 230 was put into place to undo bad court decisions. So we can do that again. Definitely, definitely. Well, Hamid, it's been great to have you on today. Any last thoughts for our audience or things that they should know about going ahead to the next few weeks, months, or even years ahead? Because the 21st century, the internet is going to be our printing press, our television, our window to the world, a vital uh, area to focus on free speech for. Anything you want to share with our audience before we close out? Um, if there are any former ACLU or current ACLU or classical liberal people watching this, it is so important in our country that it isn't just a partisan issue, free speech. Um, and so one of the reasons I started the Center for American Liberty was because the ACLU has long abandoned its core speech justifications and has just become yet another woke liberal organization that is in fact now supporting censorship and standing against some of the very principles it did when I was on the board 20 years ago. And so uh, I think it is very important for well-meaning people of all political backgrounds to come together and agree that more speech is good speech. 
And the beauty of social media is it enables the user with tools to not see what they don't want to see. You can still filter out. I block people every day on social media. You say rude or pornographic things to me, one yeah. strike and you're gone. And that's my right as a citizen. I don't have to see that. And, and Twitter allows me to do that. Um, and I hope that continues. But uh, at the same time, I have sometimes been persuaded by the views of other people, but that only happens when I can see those views. If I can't see those right. views, like I have no desire to be on a right wing Twitter. I mean, I love my friends who started some of these other companies. I've checked them out, but it's boring to hear the same viewpoints all the time. It's really boring and it's, it's like life's too short for that. So let's have a, some some spaces where people can exchange ideas and 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 looks like Elon Musk is making Twitter great again. So I'm very happy about that. Absolutely. Well, Homery, thank you for joining us on Across the State. It's been a pleasure to have you on with us. Thank you for having me. Jonathan, thanks for joining us as well. It's always a pleasure to have you on uh, for interviews. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. I appreciate it again. Thanks for having me on and thanks for having this discussion. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on Across the States. Now, for all of our ALEC members who are listening, registration is now open for the 49th ALEC annual meeting from July 27th to 29th in Atlanta, Georgia. Be sure to join us there for great speeches, engagement, and more. To sign up, you can go to alec.org slash meetings, alec.org slash meetings to find out more. I'm your host, Matt Fisher, as always, and I'll see you all again next time here on Across the States and ALEC TV. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.